Um, let me invite you to take a Bible, uh, if you brought a Bible, or maybe uh, uh, pull one up on some device that you carry with you, or there's Bibles that are in the chair racks in front of you, the blue Bibles that you can pull up as well. And we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 11. Uh, if you are using one of the blue Bibles, and 1 Kings 11 is on page 370, or at least it starts on 370. Um, if you're, uh, we took a couple weeks off, even if you've been with us through the winter, but what we're doing today is we're concluding uh, a study that we started actually in January, looking at the life and the reign of the ancient Israelite king, King Solomon. And everyone, to, to one degree or another, has has heard of, of Solomon probably. You don't need to be a Bible scholar. Everyone knows of Solomon. And when you think of Solomon, what do you think of? Well, you think of, you think of wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon. And he was, he was very wise. But this week, we're going to look at the, um, at the end of Solomon. Now, in a very literal sense, the, the chapter ends with Solomon's death. So it is, in a literal sense, the end of Solomon, but in almost every possible way, we're going to see how things began to unravel for Solomon, completely unravel, his moral character, the stability of his kingdom. And after all of the wisdom, after all the majesty, after all the gold, all the riches, all the accolades, all the high hopes of chapters 1 to 10, as one of the commentators puts it, chapter 11 is the dull thud at the end. And so what I would propose that we do this morning is a bit of um, post-mortem analysis. Uh, post-mortem, that's a term that literally means after death, post-mortem. And, and it's an autopsy of sh- sorts that seeks to answer the question, okay, what went wrong? What happened? In the military, when they evaluate an, an engagement after the fact, they do an AAR, an after-action report, or an after-action review. At Sunoco, where I worked... Um, in corporate finance, when we reviewed a project, when we made a significant investment, bought an acquisition, uh, made an acquisition or something like that, we would, a number of years later, with hindsight, look back and we would do a post-audit, we called it. And we could just call it an audit, but it was after the fact, so we called it a post-audit. Now, whatever you, whatever you call it, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look back and we're going to analyze what happened with Solomon. And to do that, I want to do it a little bit differently. Typically, when we do a scripture reading, it's a, it's a set reading. We, we often will stand for that. I'll read, um, and then we'll sit down, and then I'll talk about what we just read. Now, this morning, though, we're going to read actually all of chapter 11. And if you've got your Bibles open, and you're flipping, you're like, oh my goodness, we're going to read all of chapter 11. Well, I'm not going to make you, I'm not going to make you stand for it, um, but what I am going to do is I'm going to read it in chunks and, and, and take a couple of minutes after we read each section and make some comments about what's going on. Because in, 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 in two big headings, what we're going to do is we're going to look first at what went wrong, and that's where we're going to read through chapter 11 section by section. We're going to say, okay, this is, this is what happened. Let's look at what happened. And then, after we finish reading through it and talking about what happened, we're going to say, okay, what are the lessons learned? Whenever we did a post-audit, that's, that's kind of how it ended. The last couple of slides in the presentation were always, you know, with the title at the top, Lessons Learned. And you kind of list out the, you know, the key takeaways, the lessons learned. So we're going to read, we're going to, we're going to evaluate what happened, and then we're going to look at the lessons learned. Now, to start, if you're looking at your Bibles, we're going to read verses 1 to 13 of 1 Kings 11, okay? And here, we're going to start with Solomon's personal problems. He had all kinds of problems. We're going to start with the personal problems, okay? Listen as I read it out loud. 1 Kings chapter 11, 
starting at verse 1, and we're going to go to 13. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen." All right, let's stop there. Now, first problem and the foundational problem that we see here for Solomon is that his heart turned away from God. It starts with his love, it says in verse 1, his love for foreign women. Now, we know from chapter 3 that he had married the daughter of the Egyptian pharaoh. But here we see that it's, gone, it's gotten way out of hand. Even if, even if in some ways you could try to rationalize the 700 wives of royal birth as being just, you know, political, strategic, the 300 concubines, right, mistresses who didn't even merit the status of a wife, That alone would tip you off that Solomon has a serious problem here. But it's not not even just the external sin, as terrible as that is, that's of of greatest or, or, or most serious concern here. It's the fact that his heart was not devoted to God. That's what's underneath it all. The word heart here, it's used several times, and we and we see that that heart was not devoted to God. Instead, he sets up places of worship to foreign gods. It started in response to the request of his wives, and then he ended up participating in it as well. And God, justifiably, is angered by this. Right? He's angered because it was in direct contradiction of his law. It was in direct contradiction of what he had specifically told Solomon, a law that was put in place to not only protect God's dignity and God's glory, but a law that was put in place to protect the happiness of humanity as well. Now, that's Solomon's personal problems, and they're huge. But let's keep reading because Solomon also had his political problems. I want to read verses 14 to 25 now. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal, throne in, uh, he was of the royal house in Edom. For when David, 
That's Solomon's father. When David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to Egypt, together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. They set out from Midian and came to Paran and took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Topanes, the queen. And the sister of Topanes bore him Jenoboth, the son, whom Topanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Jenoboth was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart, that I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, What have you lacked with me, that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he said to him, Only let me depart. Now God raised up also an adversary to him, Rezan, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadad Azar, king of Zobah. And he gathered men about him and became leader of a marauding band after killing, after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. All right, now let's stop there again. So what's going on here? Basically, what's going on? God raises up two men to trouble Solomon. Neither of them are Israelites. So these are political problems, but they're external political problems. You have Hadad in the south. He's an Edomite. Now, Edomites were the descendants of, of Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob, who was the father of the, the, the nation of Israel. Jacob, Jacob's brother. Esau, his descendants were Edomites. So bad blood in the family has gone back lots of years. Now, Hadad also had a specific, more recent grievance. He was a victim of David's wars, who was apparently waiting for David's death to come back from exile in Egypt to cause trouble for the nation. Now, you also have this guy, Rezon, in the north from the kingdom of Zobah. And this, too, is rooted in David's wars because Rezon apparently never accepted defeat at the hand of David and had formed a, a, a band of guerrilla warriors that were also a trouble to Solomon and they were based out of, out of Damascus. So you've got these two external political issues that Solomon is also facing here. Right? Now, Solomon, though, didn't have just external problems. He also had internal political problems. Let's keep reading verses 26 to 40. Here, here are his problems with succession. Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of David his father. The man, Jeroboam, was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Elijah laid hold of the new garment that was Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, 
Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Kamash, the god of Moab, and Milcon, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David my father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now let's stop again one more time. So Jeroboam is is a political problem from the inside. He's an Israelite from the half-tribe of Ephraim, and and he was apparently a rising star, a a hot prospect in Solomon's government. He had a significant role in the king's construction projects in in the city of Jerusalem, but in response to Solomon's idolatry and turning away from God, God speaks to Jeroboam through the prophet Ahijah, and he tells Jeroboam that Jeroboam is going to become king over ten of the original twelve tribes of Israel. Now, this isn't going to happen until after Solomon dies. It's going to be a a problem for Solomon's son to to deal with. But that doesn't keep Solomon from finding out what's going on and trying to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam, he escapes, though. He heads to Egypt. He bides out his time until Solomon dies, which, of course, Solomon eventually does, which leads to the last of the problems, and that's Solomon's ultimate problems. Let's finish this chapter out. Now, the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did... And his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. This, all of this, everything that I just read is the word of the Lord. So, so, so that's what happened. <laughs> Big heading number one. What? What went wrong? That's what happened. That's what went wrong. Solomon's love shifted from God to other things. And in judgment, God raised up enemies, internal enemies, external enemies, so that the kingdom would eventually split apart. And then Solomon died. Thud. There you go. Now, what can we learn from all this? What are the takeaways? These are the lessons learned. I think there's five, or at least there's five that I want to talk about. Lesson number one. We fall into sin long before we fall into disgrace. Right? Think about this for a second. Mark Deaver, another commentator, puts it, a small difference in trajectory makes a big difference in destination. A small difference in trajectory makes a big difference in, in destination. Think of it like this. Here's an example. If you're going somewhere 
on a journey, and, um, and you're off course by just one degree, right, one degree. Remember, a complete circle is 360 degrees, right, 360 degrees, f- complete circle. If you're off just one degree when you start, right, if you just take one step forward, you're off maybe like, you know, 0.2 inches, completely imperceptible, just one step. You can hardly notice, no big deal. But what if you keep going? I, I, did, I did this little exercise once for my old home in, in Wilmington. Let's say you were in Wilmington, Delaware, and you want to fly around the world and land back in Wilmington, Delaware, right? But you're off course by that same one degree. Where would you end up? The difference, it appears, would be about 435 miles. To the north, that puts you in Ottawa, Canada. You're nowhere close to Wilmington, Delaware. Now think about that spiritually for a second. A small difference in trajectory can make a big difference over a long journey in your destination. Every day we make decisions that in the instant seem like there's no perceptible difference in where you're going. But when you put those small little decisions over the course or the journey of a lifetime, you end up in a completely different country if you're off course. That's what happened to Solomon. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 3 and his decision to make a strategic alliance with Pharaoh by marrying an Egyptian princess, even at the time, and we said that, you know, there's a certain sense of it when we looked at it back, you know, in the winter. There's a certain sense of what he was, of what he was, was doing. Even if at the time it was just political uh, symbolism, even if you just kind of chalked it up to legal formality, it was still contrary to God's command. And in retrospect, you see that what began as one degree led him to a completely different country. Now, the same token, right? It it works for us too. Your your decision to let your eyes linger a bit too long on the inappropriate Google ad, right, may make, it may, there may be no perceptible difference tomorrow in your life. But the spiritual effect of accumulated decisions will be the same. You'll end up ultimately in a completely different place unless unless you make course correction, right? What, what do you do off one degree? No pilot flying around the world from Wilmington, Delaware, wanting to land in Wilmington, Delaware, is just going to take off and say, all right, well, I appear to be on course now. I'll go take a nap. No, because throughout the journey, there's going to be winds, there's going to be things, there's going to be things that blow. You're going to constantly be needing to judge where you are and make corrections to your course to make sure that you stay on track and end up landing where you had intended to land. Now, in the same way, the lesson from Solomon is not just simply set your life in the right direction and lead it. No, the lesson from Solomon is about the absolute necessity of not just knowing the right course at the beginning of your life, but continuing to make course corrections all the way through. And the lesson, too, of knowing that when you start off a journey or towards the beginning of your journey, one step when you're off one degree is just a difference of 0.2 inches. The course corrections are much smaller when you catch them earlier. Take sin seriously when it's small. Now, not in a legalistic way where you try to show others how great you are or how wonderful or superiorly, morally superior you are, but because, do it because you love God, because you hate anything that, you will take, that will take you farther away from Him, even if it's just one degree. That's lesson number one. Now, lesson number two, great spiritual gifts are not enough. 
In other words, your giftedness does not guarantee the condition of your heart. Did the question ever occur to you, thinking about the life of Solomon and all of this, if Solomon was so brilliant, if he was so wise, then how could he have done these things? His wisdom was was a gift from God, and there were times, lots of times, when it was brilliantly on display judicial decisions that he made, the organization and the consolidation of the, of the nation of Israel, right? Brilliant political decisions. I mean, absolutely marvelously on display throughout much of his life. But too often, we can confuse a person's gift with a person's heart. Solomon didn't fall because what he wrote in Proverbs was wrong. <laughs> he failed because his heart fell out of love with the God to whom those Proverbs pointed. So what do we do? Well, it means if you're evaluating your own spiritual condition, then you don't look primarily at your external productivity because your external productivity can be very misleading. Now, this is hugely convicting for someone like me who likes to judge constantly his external productivity. But you can be serving in all kinds of very important ways in the church Never miss a Sunday, always serving when asked. You can be an elder, a deacon, a worship leader. You can be a missionary to South Asia or Africa or the Middle East, and you can be good, you can be very good, you can be excellent in all of those things. But that alone says very little about the condition of your heart. And so honestly, we need to ask ourselves, what is the condition of my heart towards God? What is the greatest object of my affections, even in serving the Lord? I'm serving the Lord, even in serving the Lord. Am I doing it for the thrill of success? Am I doing it for the attention from others? Or is God really the object of my affection? Ask yourself, do I feel right now, how do I feel in my life right now about how I'm growing? Am I growing more deeply in love with God or am I getting farther and farther away? Now stick with the aviation metaphor for a second. I'm not talking... I'm not talking about your distance from the final destination. I'm not talking about the speed that you're traveling. I'm talking about the course. Some of us will get there more quickly than others. We're not judged on how quickly we get to the destination. We're judged on what that destination is. We're talking about staying on course. And so the instrument that we use to judge whether we're on course or not is not it's not the giftometer, right? We <laughs> say, so how are the gifts doing? It's the heartometer. How's the heart doing? Even the greatest spiritual gifts will not keep us from sin if our hearts turn away from God. That's lesson number two. Now, this is pretty depressing if we stop here. Let's be honest, right? Tom, please tell me we're not done. I mean, some of you might be saying, please tell me we're done. But others of you might be saying, please tell me we're not done because it's pretty depressing if we stop here because, wow, you think I'm not, I, man, man, I think about my life. I'm not sure I'm off by just one degree, which means I'm not going to end up in Ottawa. I'm going to end up in like the Arctic Circle or something if this is how it plays out. Now, there's three more lessons. I want to go through them quickly and I want each one to build on the next. Lesson number three from what we just read in First Kings chapter 11, God is in complete control. And we see this specifically in the case of the discipline that he's promising to bring against Solomon's kingdom. Go, go, go back to, to verse 35, where God's talking through the prophet to Jeroboam. Remember the rising political star, the internal political problem that Solomon had? The prophet is talking to Jeroboam, and, he, and see how he phrases it. Talking about Solomon, he says, I will take the kingdom out of 
his son's hands and give it to you, that's give it to Jeroboam, ten tribes. Do you see that? Do see how he said it? Who, who's in control? Who, is Jeroboam taking the ten tribes? No, no, God's giving them to him. God's in control. Now, at a broader level, right, that should be somewhat comforting to us in the midst of political uncertainty, nationally and internationally. It means that God is in complete control of everything, kings and kingdoms, dictators and regimes, presidents and, and nations. But as a pers- at a personal level, as you consider and as you think about your, your own life, it also means that God is in complete control of, of even your disobedience and even your consequences of that disobedience, right? This is what I mean. This is why this is comforting. If you were the nation of Israel and you're going to go through centuries of political conflict and war and exile and idolatry and bad leadership, all the consequences of, of the sin that result from Solomon's failures, right? All of those things would happen. They were going to happen. But if you were the nation of Israel and you're about to go through all of that and you're looking for hope, then your hope would start with the truth that God is sovereignly ruling over it all. And that he is allowing the nation to experience those consequences, the consequences of sin, not because those things are outside of his control, but because under his perfect control, he has designed those circumstances to be used for the ultimate good of the nation. Now, personally now, if you're suffering through the consequences of personal sin, poor decisions in your, in your own life, fractured relationships, addictions, destructive behavior, or if you're suffering through the consequences of sin more broadly, right, things like disease, death, grief, or if you're suffering through the consequences of sin that have been done against you, abuse, slander, however you're suffering through the consequences of sin, hope starts with the truth that God is sovereignly reigning over all of it. And that might not initially sound hopeful because it might raise all kinds of questions, mainly the why kinds of questions. Why would God allow this to happen? Why is he allowing me to experience the consequences of this? Why is he Why is he having me experience it in this way and at this time and all those whys? And in the specifics of our individual circumstances, there may not be right now satisfying answers to those why questions. And you may need to trust that God has reasons that you will not completely understand that will require, like with the case of Israel, centuries maybe of historical perspective. That there may be answers that you will not, cannot have or understand in this lifetime. But for now, I would argue that for whatever the struggle the why questions might pose, I would argue that you do not want a God who in the midst of your struggle, your struggle with sin's consequences is not in sovereign control over them. You do not want a God who is surprised by them. You do not want a God who is wondering about what to do next. No, you want and you have a God who is revealed here, a God who is in complete control. That's lesson number three. And you want that God to be in complete control because lesson number four, God's not done with the promise to David and the promise to Solomon. Look at verse 39. Yes, Solomon's kingdom is going to experience the consequence of his sin. I will afflict the offspring of David because of this. But what does he say? I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. What does that mean? Go back to verse 35, which we just read. I will take the kingdom out of his 
son's hands and I will give it to you, ten tribes. Now keep reading. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. What's happening? What's going on? Judgment is coming. The kingdom of Solomon is going to be split. But that judgment is on a leash. And it will be mitigated. It will be directed. It will be controlled by God's faithfulness to a promise. See, he's not just sovereignly in control. He is sovereignly in control with a plan. It was a promise that was made way back to the patriarch Jacob, Israel himself, a promise that the scepter would not, the rule of the king would not depart from the tribe of Judah's son. And it was because of that promise that God chose David, Solomon's father, from the tribe of Judah to be king. And it was because of that promise that David was put on that throne and and given a forever kingdom. One last time, let me refer to 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you've been here since January, you've known that we constantly have gone back to 2 Samuel 7. And that's because that's where God makes this promise to David. When he says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You see what he's saying? You see what he said to David? Solomon's wrongdoing did not surprise God. He told David that it was going to happen. And it doesn't negate the promise. The kingdom of David's son Solomon, the lamp in Jerusalem, will continue. It will never go out. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but turn to Matthew chapter 1 and just look at the verse. Matthew chapter 1 verse 7. This is, this is the beginning of the gospel. What does it say? Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. What's that? That's Solomon's name. Where is it located? It's in a list of names that, that leads to who? To Jesus. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus is the son of Solomon. God wasn't done. Things were going to get very bleak for the people of God. The unity of the kingdom was broken. There would be a few good kings, but there would not be many. But God wasn't done. The prophets would largely be ignored. Israel and Judah would both be conquered and its people sent into exile. Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed, never to return to its former glory. But God wasn't done. All of these things that happen in our lives, that is the promise and that is the hope God is not done. He keeps his promise. And that's where the hope is in this genealogy that leads us to Jesus. Because if you go back and you think about it, Solomon did wrong, but he did not receive the literal beatings by the rods of men that were promised. But Jesus did, and much more. And he never strayed from the course, yet he was the one who took the stripes that Solomon deserved, that we deserve, so that we can gain a heavenly kingdom that makes all the splendor of Solomon's kingdom drab and dreary by comparison now that's lesson four but if god is not done with his promise to david and solomon then we can have assurance that lesson number five god's not done with you and me you know you might be wondering solomon ever learned from his mistakes did he ever repent 
Will we see Solomon in heaven? It's not an insignificant question, particularly if you're Solomon. I think, incidentally, that he probably did. 1 Kings 11 is silent, but if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 3, the language there that describes Solomon's love for the Lord, it's language that is almost always reserved for a saving love that is given by God. And if Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes, which is the traditional view, then you have perhaps some very good evidence of his recognition in his last days of the futility, the vanity of his life without God. So you may have been wondering about that question, did Solomon learn from his mistakes and repent? But that's not the primary question that you ought to be asking. Not the primary question that we ought to be asking. The primary question that we ought to be asking is, will we learn from our mistakes and will we repent? Because regardless of whether we can ever be sure of Solomon's salvation, you can be sure of yours. And it doesn't come from trusting in yourself, and it doesn't come from trusting in your gifts, and it doesn't come from trusting in your wisdom. It comes from trusting in Jesus, the earthly son of Solomon, whose death takes the judgment that we deserve. Have you done that? Let Solomon's life help you do that. I read one person's, one person sum up Solomon's life like this. Uh, why make your own mistakes when you can learn from his? <laughs> what's, what's the lesson for you of Solomon's life? Why, 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 why make your own mistakes? All you have to do is, is learn from his. You don't need to make your own mistakes. You can learn from his. Will you? Let Solomon teach you. Could it be that one of the main points of the reign of King Solomon that's recorded here for us that we've been studying from January, could it be that one of the primary points for us is that he failed? <laughs> that he couldn't do it? That all of, the, all of the wisdom that he had, that it wasn't enough, could that be the primary point? Yes. Yes, it could. And then could the point of our failure, your failure and my failure, could that point be to lead us to the very same conclusion? Yes. God is not done with me and you yet. We're still under construction. I know that's not always pleasant. But God's not done. He's still working. Stacey and I went on an anniversary road trip about five years ago, and we drove through a bunch of highway construction. And in the middle of it, you can get very, very frustrated. But while we were away, one of the places we visited in North Carolina was um, the Cove. It's the, uh, the retreat and the conference center for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And, and they have a little welcome center with, you know, things on display and stuff. And one of the things that we saw there, I don't remember it, but Stacy saw it, um, is a picture of Ruth Graham's tombstone. Ruth was Billy's wife for almost 64 years before, before her death. And it's, it's kind of an interesting question to consider as we think about the end of Solomon's life. It's an interesting question to consider for us as a congregation as we wrestle with and as we mourn the loss of someone in our own congregation. What do you think would be a fitting epitaph? What would be fitting on the tombstone? What would it be for Solomon? Or better yet, what would it be for you? You know what Ruth Graham's tombstone says? It says, Ruth Bell Graham, June 10, 1920 to June 14, 2007. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. That's what it says. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. It's a quote from like a road sign. But it's so true. In this life, we're under construction. But God is exceedingly patient. 
And He wants us and He allows us at times to experience the consequences of our sin so that we can turn to Christ before we rest in the grave. Now, there's one more thing on Ruth Graham's grave marker. It's a Chinese character. She was born in China to missionaries. There's a Chinese character at the top of her gravestone, and it's a Chinese character that means simply righteousness. And it's at the top of, our, at the, top of the stone because it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers our life. God is patient with us because the, the, the supervisor, the, the foreman of the construction project, He's patient with us because that supervisor of the construction project is the righteous son of Solomon. And the promise that God makes is the promise that he will keep. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for the promises that you make to care for us. Thank you that you are not done with us. And thank you, Lord, that you are here among us. Father, if we are here, then we can be absolutely certain that it is not too late for us, too late for course correction, too late for repentance. And Lord, it may be whole life course correction. We may be seeking after other gods, or it may just be one degree, one thing that's slightly out of line. Lord, don't allow anything over the course of a lifetime to draw us away from you. And help us to correct and to come back and to find our happiness and our joy where it belongs and that is only in you. We thank you for what you have done for us and what you will continue to do as we seek to serve you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.